Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Is Connecticut's brew scene still hopping in 2022? A dozen breweries closed in our state since the start of the pandemic, according to the Connecticut Brewers Guild, but another 22 opened. Coming up where we live, we check in on the $3 billion craft brew industry in Connecticut, an industry that employs nearly 18,000. Now, challenges remain for breweries like ingredient costs rising, a continued labor shortage, and now reports of carbon dioxide shortages in our region. Brewers Guild Executive Director Phil Pappas joins us with more. That's just ahead. First, there's a local scholarship program to encourage black students to join the brewing industry. A Connecticut resident who's worked in the beer industry since he was 18 started the collaboration. Joining us now on Zoom is Jamal Robinson, Director of Sales and Marketing at New England Brewing Company, also known as NEBCO. That's in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Jamal was recently recognized as one of Hartford Business Journal's annual 40 Under 40. Jamal, welcome and congratulations. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Let us know uh, what local craft breweries uh, you visit uh, near where you live. Uh, Now, Jamal, I mentioned that you helped start up a scholarship program uh, to encourage black students uh, to join the brewing industry. When you look at the craft brewing industry in in Connecticut, is it still predominantly white? and, And how did you get into it? Uh, yeah, it's absolutely predominantly white. And I got into the industry because I was I was working at a Jewish deli, so I was in a very white space. Um, I was uh, a server at a deli, and the GM, or the, the VP of an Anheuser-Busch wholesaler, was one of the regulars that sat in my section all the time. I uh, thought I was a great guy and a great kid and, and, and gave me a, uh, an internship, gave me an opportunity to get into the industry. So what does it look like now in our state? I understand, are there only two Black-owned breweries? Yes, as far as I know in Connecticut, yeah. And so when we talk about the scholarship opportunity that you launched, you know, what was happening around that time that made you, you know, talk with people that you knew in the industry to make this happen? So, you know, during COVID, uh, I think a lot of us, me like a lot of us, had a lot of time to think uh, and took that time to think to really, especially just thinking and seeing where we are in the industry. Uh, it was kind of a call to action on my own thought about myself, thought about my role in this industry that I've been in for a long time, uh, thought about all the protests that were going on, so my role in black community and, and in my my own community here in New Haven. Uh, and there was just a call to action and a need. So I sat with our director team uh, and we talked about what we could do, what, what, what was our role in all of this. We do a lot for charity and we do a lot for um, community in general, but we didn't have anything focused on black community. And uh, that was important. So we started what we call our uh, Equality Committee, uh, which is essentially a diversity inclusion, uh, diversity, diversity, equity and inclusion committee. Where we focus specifically on uh, when we first started focusing specifically on 
trying to diversify the industry and what would that look like? Trying to bring some awareness to racial injustice and trying to help elevate uh, black communities in our area. We're in Woodbridge, New England Brewing is right on the border of Woodbridge and, and New Haven. So black community is, is, is right here. It's where we are. And it felt necessary and important to do something like that. And our director team agreed and, and we all sat down and it was like, okay, what could we do? And, and what would that mean? And our, once we started our equality committee, which ended up being about half our employees here at NEPCO, um, one of the first things to tack that uh, Sacred Heart University had a brewing science program that it had just recently started that year. And we wanted to reach out to them to see if there was possibility in helping us start a scholarship, you know, diversifying who's brewing in the industry and, and what that what that means and what that looks like. So after we reached out, they were all on board. Uh, we started the process of, of figuring out what that really means to, to start a scholarship. And we ended up starting two scholarships. One is an annual scholarship that New England Brewing funds. And uh, really proud of our team for, for being on board with that. The, the Brewing Science Program is a $15,000 program. So when we talk about someone of color who is not necessarily entrenched in the craft beer scene, and certainly coming from a different uh, industry or career choice, $15,000 is, is a real number. $15,000 program and 11 months uh, to actually go through the program. So it was important to us that we paid the full tuition fee and gave someone, took that that weight off of someone to really be able to jump in and, and to be passionate about this industry. But then we also, uh, in talking with Phil Pappas, the director of the Connecticut Brewers Guild, he and I are friends and we started talking one day and once he found out about our scholarship and what we were doing, he expressed how this is something that the guild should be a part of. And I agreed. And we started talking about what that would mean on the next steps. So we started creating an endowed scholarship, uh, which means the, the interest that you raise for that scholarship spins off to pay for the, that scholarship annually. So for us to pay for a $15,000 program in perpetuity, it would mean we'd have to raise $250,000 um, as a collective. So that kind of spearheaded where we set a goal for, for, to raise $50,000 a year over the course of five years. And in the meantime, New England Brewing uh, is putting up an annual scholarship for those five years so that we didn't have to wait five years to start mm. impacting what this industry looks like. That's great to hear, Jamal. So this is the NEBCO African-American Brewers Scholarship and also the Connecticut Brewers Guild African-American Brewing, Brewing Scholarships. We're going to have information on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live for our listeners uh, to learn more. And so tell me about what the response was like. And again, your goal was to put through one student a year. And, and what did you what, what kind of results did you see? We had uh, incredible results. Uh, a lot of a lot of the industry kind of showed up for this one and reached, people started reaching out, asking how they could get involved, how they could support. Um, Athletic Brewing reached out and wanted to add uh, an, another annual scholarship to the, the to the whole program. So we were putting two students through. Um, so we so there is also uh, Athletic Brewing. Uh, five-year uh, annual scholarship that has started as well. And then on top of that, we've got support from Two Roads and from a lot of other breweries, uh, Great Falls, um, Rhythm Brewing, and a bunch of other breweries that have jumped on board and wanting to be a part of this initiative overall. So um, with, with the help of Two Roads last year, we actually were able to put four students through the program, two of which were Black women. Um, and that's just an incredible thing when we think about the, the brewing industry in Connecticut being a, an obviously a, a very predominantly white space. Mm. Well, when you talked about, you know, of the four students, two were black women. Can you tell me about them? And, you know, again, you know, their response to having this opportunity. 
I think they love the experience. They love the opportunity to be able to do that. And and one of the things I've heard from them is, you know, the, the expectation of not exactly knowing what to expect coming into this industry, um, but have been met with uh, pure positivity. Uh, and it, it's not the kind of, it's got to, it could have the stigma of being kind of a bro-y, uh, bearded scenario. But a, a lot of people have been, have really been helpful. Uh, and and the, the, what I've heard from them is that they've, They've loved the community that they've been a part of. They they love the the fact of everyone reaching out to them and and helping them along the way. Everything they've learned, but specifically the community. It's one of the things that I love the most about this industry is is it's filled with great people, uh, and and it's got this help each other rise kind of kind of mentality. When I started off my career with Anheuser Busch, it was a very corporate brand loyal kind of mentality. You only drink our beers and and that's it, and you don't talk to the other. The other breweries but craft beer is, is pretty much the exact opposite the whole industry helps each other out if someone needs hops or someone needs grain you can reach out to another brewery and they can they can help out in the short term with that um, not to mention just drinking each other's beer so having people of color coming into this industry and, and getting the same response and the same feelings that i've been a part of since i've been in it is is, is pretty awesome you're hearing Jamal Robinson here on Where We Live, Director of Sales and Marketing at New England Brewing Company, or NEBCO, in Woodbridge, Connecticut, as we focus on the craft brew industry in our state. Uh, first off, learning about efforts uh, that Jamal uh, has led uh, to uh, work on collaboration and work on diversifying uh, the local craft brew industry. You can join us. Again, we'd love to hear from you about some of the craft uh, breweries that you visit, uh, where you live, or just about uh, the industry in general. Our number or 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So it's great to hear about that collaboration and these different scholarships, but it sounds like uh, it doesn't stop there. There's something called Change in the Air Festival. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we started the Endowed Scholarship, it was important that this wasn't just a, a New England brewing initiative, that this was an industry initiative. If we're really trying to change the the feel and the energy and the shape of what this industry looks like it, it, it takes a lot more than one brand uh so we started uh i started reaching out to friends in the industry started fielding some calls from people in the industry and uh and and, and started a committee of folks to really focus on the fundraising efforts of the endowed scholarship Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars is a lot of money um and we've got a as a, as a brand and individually, we've been doing a lot of things to try and raise that money, but it was important that we got everybody involved. So especially like when someone's someone of color coming into an industry that they're not, not necessarily familiar with, it's, I think it's important that they don't just see one or two breweries a part of that, but they see this industry that is embracing this movement. Um, that, that certainly makes something feel more welcoming and, and, and be more welcoming overall. So as we were talking about different fundraising efforts, one of the things that a lot of places do is just throw a charity golf tournament, right? It's a, it's a pretty standard fundraiser for a lot of organizations. So we, we talked about that briefly. And, and in reality, we realized that, A, this isn't something that people of color strive to go to. And, and two, it's not super inclusive. It doesn't really fit the mission of what we're trying to do overall. So we started talking about throwing a beer festival. You know, that's something we do. We're all in the industry. We've all been to beer fests. We know it's a great time. And uh, we started talking about, all right, if we're going to throw a beer festival, it, it really shouldn't be what your traditional beer festival is because that's a pretty predominantly white space. And then that defeats the purpose of what we're trying to do here. So we started thinking about what that would mean, what could happen at a beer fest, the conversations we'd want to happen, the feel and the energy. And as we started batting around ideas, um, what came to mind is a festival called Fresh Fest uh, that's out in uh, 
out in Pittsburgh. And it's it's called Barrel and Flow now, but it's a, it's a black owned brew fest filled with black owned breweries from all around the country and filled with collaborations. All these breweries collaborate. It's got art and music and it's, it's a, it's a very, very cool space. And it's been voted one of the best beer fests in the country. So that was kind of the blueprint and gave us the, the mindset, like this is something that could happen. And especially if we're building, if we're trying to diversify who's brewing in the industry, it's important that we diversify who's drinking beer and that we change the, what the spaces look like. Like I said before, I, I got in this industry being in a, in a very white space and I think it's important that we that we look to change and create new spaces so that white spaces aren't the only way to get into this industry. So the festival is as much a fundraiser. It's also an opportunity to bring craft beer into a very comfortable space for people of color. So all of our musicians, our artists, um, all of our pop-up vendors, all the food vendors are all black and brown owned. Uh, and then we have 25 of Connecticut and, and outside the region um, some of the best breweries in this area and brought craft beer into a space uh, for people of color instead of the other way around, trying to throw this beer fest and then invite black folks to come to that. So that was in June. What was the response, Jamal? Yeah, we did that on June 18th, uh, June 19th, and it was a great response. We sold over 500 tickets. Uh, we raised $15,000 and more than anything, we threw just a great party, a great vibe. And the response I hear from people of color, A, being that, man, I, I didn't know this type of thing existed. They got an opportunity to try beers they wouldn't have tried before, which is exactly what a beer fest is supposed to be. You know, this is when we, when beer fest first started happening in Connecticut and, and I was uh, working for Blue Point Brewing and, and pouring beers. It was it was kind of this surreal scene that you could try 20, 30, 40 different breweries and the four or five beers that they brought to the table that day and really figure out what you like and really get involved uh, as a whole, as opposed to going to a, a package store and, and committing to a whole six pack. So, but over the time, you've got a lot of beer geeks, you've got a lot of people that are in the industry and, and in and around it now. So it doesn't necessarily have that same feel. And what I heard the most from brewers was like, man, this felt like the old beer fest again. People were coming up, asking questions, wanting information, wanting to know what's in this beer and what it's about and not just kind of running to the, the brewery that's got the most hype at the time. And then from people, uh, from white folks that have been to all these beer fests before, I heard a lot of feedback from them being like, this is the best beer fest I've ever been to. It just is, it's just more fun. There's DJs playing hip hop and R&B. There's people dancing. There's, there's this atmosphere and this vibe and this energy that's, that's infectious and, and fun and welcoming all the way around. And then you've got this really diverse crowd of black, brown, white, Asian, everyone just in this space enjoying a collective of, of the culture and uh, the beer all in the same space. And uh, it, it was cool. I've been in, the, this is my 18th year in, in craft beer business. And I've never felt more welcome and more at home than I did the first year at Changing Air Festival. And that was, that was a pretty powerful feeling for me. So you're really starting to see a difference between, you know, a brand just saying that they're trying to be inclusive to actually, you know, putting forth money and effort to affect that change, Jamal. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a reality to, I think most of this industry is, is welcoming by nature. That is the intention. That's how they feel. Um, but I try to explain to people that if, you know, especially if I'm talking to white folks, if I say, you know, picture yourself walking into a space, walking into a restaurant that you've heard the food is really good, uh, but you don't know anything else about the culture really. And you walk in and no one in there looks like you. They're not playing any of the music that you listen to and 
you definitely get a couple of looks from people, whether that's a look like, huh, that's interesting you're here or why are you here? And maybe it's not even an aggressive look, but it's certainly a tension that you get when you walk in is your first instinct to feel comfortable. You know, I don't, I think as a, as a human being, no one immediately walks into that situation and their first instinct is like, I feel comfortable here. And I think that's a part of what we talk about when we're trying to create new spaces is that it's not just saying that you're welcoming to all it's, it's, it's doing things that intentionally embrace other cultures and other people to, to instill the fact that you are welcoming because you're creating things that isn't just built for one demographic, but it's built for everyone. Um, and that's a big part of what Change in the Airfest is. So hopefully happening again next year, Jamal. That's, that's the plan. Uh, <laughs> up, up, onward and upward. Um, our goal, we've actually been able to start. Um, so the committee that started the festival and, and have been fundraising, we've actually filed the paperwork to become a, a nonprofit 501c3 because we've got bigger goals outside of just the scholarship. Once we can fund that endowed scholarship, it's, it's a bigger initiative. We think about the fact that, again, if we want to diversify who's in the industry, most of us that are in the industry aren't actual brewers like myself and a lot of my colleagues are sales and marketing and it's tap room and packaging line and so forth. So we'd like to evolve to be able to create internships and create other opportunities to get into the brewing industry besides just being a brewer. Um, there's this, uh, like we said, it's a $3 million, $3 billion industry here in Connecticut. And there's a lot of opportunity outside of, of just brewing beer. So, you know, again, the scholarship helping uh, to um, pay for students to go through or part of uh, paying for them to go through the brewing uh, science program at Sacred Heart. But when you think about expansion, so thinking about ways to help people pursue other degrees like marketing. Yeah, or at least, you know, getting internships and getting involved, building those relationships between good brands and, and getting people getting their foot in the door. You know, a lot of the people I know that are in the industry didn't necessarily go to college, get a degree in craft beer and then and then get into the industry. It's, it's built on relationships. It's built on experiences. It's, it's built on connecting those relationships to those experiences and then getting an opportunity. And that's exactly how I did. I, I, I left college to get into to stay in the beer business. And uh, my trajectory through the last 18 years have been built on work ethic and relationships and, and trying to do the right thing and, and, and being good at the gig. But I think that's a, that's the same story for a lot of people that are in the industry. So we don't want to pigeonhole that transition to just being you have to take this 15 month brewing science program mm -hmm. to get into the business because many of us haven't gotten in that way. So change in the air festival, the, the hope is to turn it into a foundation and, and the origin of the name, Jamal, tell us a little bit more. So when we first started the scholarship, um, we did a collaboration with Dockside Brewing uh, down in Milford and we brought in uh, Karim, who is our scholarship recipient from last year. He also is one of the only other um, black owned breweries in the state, Best Friends Lunch. He's making some really good beer. You should try his stuff if you have um, but uh, we got together uh, and we're talking about the collaboration and, and, and what the name of that beer would be. And we released that beer on Juneteenth of 2021. And Karim actually came up with that name. And he was like, you know, if you're, if we're trying to be intentionally symbolic here, if you're thinking about a free slave that just found out that they're free for the first time and taking that, that breath of fresh air for the first time as a, as a free human being, what that must have felt like. But then also the the transition of what we're trying to do in this industry and, and really changing the air and changing the landscape of of the industry and the feel of the industry overall it just 
it was just a perfect name for that collaboration. And then when we started talking about the festival, it felt like it didn't make a lot of sense to try and reinvent the wheel. It was a, it was a perfect name that really hit home and what are, what we're trying to accomplish overall. So, so we stuck with that name. You're hearing Jamal Robinson here on Where We Live, Director of Sales and Marketing at New England Brewing Company. He's going to stay with us, and after the break, we'll continue talking about the craft brew industry in our state, also how the industry pivoted during the pandemic and how the industry continues to grow with new breweries. We want to, we're want we going to be hearing from the Connecticut Brewers Guild, and we'll take your questions too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Brewers Association tracks national beer sales and production annually. We spoke with Bart Watson, the chief economist and lead author on a new report who noted that despite losses during the pandemic, craft beer business nationwide had mostly rebounded. Here's more from Watson. What we saw during COVID wasn't necessarily a drop in the overall consumption of beer, but just a radical change in where we bought it. So we bought a lot more beer at the grocery store, you know, package form, um, and we bought a lot less beer at, at bars and restaurants. And that shift in particular was really hard for craft brewers since they t- tend to sell a lot more draft beer as well as at their breweries. And largely, you know, we're seeing people come back to their previous patterns of shopping that they had pre-COVID. Are you one of them? You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We wanted to understand the changes seen in Connecticut's brewing industry since the pandemic. So joining us now on Zoom is Phil Pappas, Executive Director of the Connecticut Brewers Guild. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So I understand the the guild started in 2012. So what was it like a maybe less than a dozen breweries at that time? And now how many do we have? Yeah, we uh, back in short 10 years ago, we only had about eight to 10 breweries. Um, and today we're standing 125 strong. That's amazing in, in a decade. And so when we think about the last two and a half years that you've spoken uh, through your role about the challenges uh, breweries have faced from can shortages to, to various state mandates. And so how would you describe the challenges being seen now? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the last two and a half years, uh, like everybody um, in every business, we've dealt with uh, a lot of the challenges COVID has has hit us with. Um, but along with that, uh, to your to your statement, has been a lot of um, secondary and third uh, degree uh, effects through our supply chain. So uh, a lot of uh, you know, Ball, one of the largest can manufacturers in the world, um, set. Uh, very high minimums for ordering um, at a million cans. And, and a lot of our small breweries, no brewery in Connecticut um, goes through that. And so they would have to spend an, an, an egregious amount of money on cans uh, to either sit in store and, and not go through them within five or maybe even 10 years. And um, so we've also seen uh, you know, raw ingredient uh, increases as well through hops and grain. Um, and of course, now we're seeing a, a CO2 shortage um, that we're going to see uh, either a very long period of time that, that we may have to have a shortage of CO2 or uh, the cost of CO2 is going to significantly uh, increase as well. I wanted to get more into that in just a little bit, uh, Phil, but, you know, backing up to when we think about the, the restrictions placed on on businesses, especially during the peak of uh, the pandemic, uh, the way that um, breweries were able uh, to open or stay in business. Can you talk about some of those mandates and where they stand now? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the mandates that we saw were six foot distancing rules between tables and chairs, um, no seating at the bar unless there was plexiglass at least 30 inches high. Um, food acquirement, uh, that was the biggest one that hit our industry. Uh, a lot of our breweries were forced to serve food uh, to our patrons. And um, a lot of the breweries work with third parties in terms of food trucks, um, caterers, and, and local restaurant delivery. Um, and we had to have food on site available during the entire time that we were open. Um, and that was a mandate for about six to seven months. Um, so, so breweries either had to rely on someone else uh, coming in. And if a food truck ended up, you know, having some sort of cancellation and whether they were unable to show up or that maybe they had a family medical emergency or, or COVID hit their, their family or friends, or they were exposed, uh, they had to cancel. And then the brewery were forced to close the entire day that day because they didn't have food on site. So they lost an entire day of sales due to something like that. Um, so a lot of the breweries had to incur food programs themselves and take on the additional cost of that. While we also saw the increase in raw products and raw ingredients for food as well. Um, and so we saw that happen for about, uh, like I said, six to seven months until December 2nd, uh, when Governor Lamont decided to implement the rule that it had to be uh, food of sub substantial uh, matter. So it didn't just have to be any sort of food, even though we were providing that it had to be, you know, a salad with protein, it had to be a piece of cake or something larger. And it had to be these um, additional really restrictive food requirements, even though there was real no change in COVID at that time. Hmm. What was the reason for that? Um, my understanding uh, from in, in all of our discussions with Governor Lamana and David Lehman and the reopening committee was uh, to prevent um, potential for intoxication. And they believe that if people were having some alcohol or having some beer, that they would um, forget about the rules and, and come within six feet of, of people. Um, we highly uh, argued that. And, and we have extremely trained staff on site, all of our uh, brewery taproom staff and all of our brewers are, are tips certified. I'm a tips trainer. So we went around and make sure everybody was, was updated in their training to prevent over intoxication. Um, it's something we deal with every single day. Um, you know, we, we, we serve alcohol to people and we understand the effects of alcohol. Um, and we, we were confident, extremely confident. We provide safe environments to our patrons, um, not only through COVID, but 
<clears throat> with the with the effects of alcohol. So, you know, if there was anybody getting out of their seat or coming within six feet or taking their mask off, if they were walking to or from the bathroom or, or in and outside of the building, um, we can enforce those rules. We do enforce rules every single day when it comes to alcohol um, and, and within our tap rooms as well. And so not a mandate anymore, but small business owners know uh, you're investing in equipment uh, and making sure you have the right people. And so this impacted uh, brewery business models regardless, even if the mandate is no longer there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of the breweries, uh, like I said, who are relying on on third parties, whether it be food trucks or, or a caterer or someone else, um, you know, and they were doing, let's say, halfway decent through COVID. Uh, you know, they decided to take some of those funds and implement those food programs more permanently. So installing kitchens um, or installing small fryers or, or grills and, and doing the food themselves. So, you know, people have been really responsive to that and, and really uh, excited that they can go to a brewery and sit down and have food and beer um, all made by that site as well. Um, the other business model we've seen is, is breweries bringing in. Um, restaurants that may have closed, uh, bringing in those chefs and giving them an opportunity to be employed. Um, use more of a, of a test kitchen where they can come in for a certain amount of time, whether it's, you know, a month per month or whether it's a six month basis, they can come in and, and try maybe a new con- new restaurant concept. Um, but, but give some opportunities to, to restaurants and to uh, chefs that may have either lost their business or lost their job. Again, uh, you're with you're hearing where we live as we talk about the local craft brew industry. My guest, Phil Pappas, executive director of the Connecticut Brewers Guild. You can join us. We'd love to hear from you about uh, which breweries uh, you go to in your neighborhood. I know that uh, my family checks out a uh, Powder Hill Brewery in Enfield, uh, also yeah. Broadbrook that just opened up a space a couple years ago uh, in uh, Suffield, right on the border of Suffield and Windsor. You can join us as well. Eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So we did talk to uh, Brewers Association Chief Economist Bart Watson, and he did describe how these business models had to deal with changing from wholesale and tap room sales. And so would you say that uh, for the businesses uh, that are that are open and doing well, that's made them more sustainable, Phil? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we did see draft sales significantly decline when, when restaurants were under the same mandates that we were. Um, but draft has come back. Um, Bart uh, spoke very, very eloquently at our Crap Brewers conference in regards to draft being back, um, which is great. Um, there increased competition, of course, with seltzers and, and ready to drink cocktails um, that are out there. It seems like <laughs> there's a new brand every single time I go in the package store. But, you know, brew- that's why we allowed breweries to um, have multi manufacturing permits. So breweries can now brew wine, uh, brew, sp- uh, manufacture spirits, uh, manufacture cider and, and keep it in with them themselves as well. So, you know, we've seen a lot of shifts of different business models come into the brewing industry and distribution has been um, a, a great uh, asset to, to making money and, and providing jobs within the industry. Breweries are able to self-distribute as well. Um, so there's, there's a lot of great retailers out there, a lot of great supporters and, and they're realizing that craft beer is the, one of the best options for them to provide um, in their sales. I mean, it, the, the, you know, Jamal can definitely speak. I mean, New England Brewing Company, Seahag is the number one skew in Connecticut. Um, it's on the shelves and it, it flies. Um, so it's, it's really great to see the support from these local retailers as well. And I think that was one of the best. So the, one of the silver linings during COVID was people realized how important it was to support local. 
Uh, you referenced Jamal Robinson, who's still with us, Director of Sales and Marketing at New England Brewing Company or NEBCO in Woodbridge. Uh, Jamal, what did you want to add? Um, yeah, I think Bill's right in terms of speaking about how the people got up and supported local. Our tap room, even though we had to shut down, we did to-go service and people pulling up with lines, getting cases to go, tipping the staff incredibly well, you know, knowing that you know service re re relies heavily on those tips. Uh, people really showed up and supported. It was, it was pretty amazing to see uh, as a brand. We actually had to shut down the brewery. We, we split our team into, into two teams. We didn't officially shut down, but we split our entire company into two teams that op operated op opposite weeks, um, which was basically running the, the brewery on a bare bones team each week uh, just to make sure if there was an exposure, we didn't know how long COVID was going to last or how bad it was going to get. So if there was an exposure, we we'd be able to still operate the, the brewery and the customers that supported us, the wholesaler network that supported us, um, all the retailers that supported us. Uh, it was, it was an incredible time and, and the support was necessary. Mm. Uh, Phil, I mentioned at the top that, you know, during the pandemic, about a dozen breweries closed, but I believe another 22 opened. I think one of them was is Space Cat, which is a tap room forward, who's uh, actually a tap room forward model. Uh, they have a big tap room uh, in South Norwalk. I'm wondering if you can talk about that. He told us that it was not the norm. Yeah, so we've seen a shift in what brewery just even the the layout looks like um, over the last 10 years a lot of the breweries uh, were on a distribution model and said let's make some really great beer and and give it to some patrons uh, to go but most of it's going to be going out into the market uh, restaurants and package stores so um, <clears throat> since we've allowed taproom sales in 2012 that's where the guild got its start um, of, of inception of allowing uh, you to drink beer on site. We've seen that shift go to a taproom model, um, and the the margins are a lot better for the breweries. You know, of course, uh, on site and selling to go. Uh, so that's really where a lot of the models have gone, and we've seen uh, taprooms open in that mindset of, "Hey, I'm just going to brew beer. I'm I'm going to sell it on site, and and people can take you know some of it to go." Um, but I'm going to keep it really on site. Um, and then they keep that model for a couple of years until they get to the point where people are asking for their beer across the state or, you know, package store saying, hey, I'm getting so many inquiries from for your beer. We want to be able to hold it. Um, and then they start implementing some self-distribution um, and, and ha you know, hiring somebody, uh, which adds more jobs and, and adding a delivery driver to get make those sales and get out there. And, um, and then we see that, uh, you know, it took about breweries about four to five years to sign on with their distributor. Um, we're seeing that come down into more of the three-year mark now. So it is shifting where breweries are making more money on site. Um, and then they're going to be able to be able to feel more comfortable and um, have more money to be able to uh, send out into the market through distribution. Uh, Jamal, I mentioned that New England Brewing Company or Nebco's in Woodbridge, you know, their plans to, to expand or to relocate. Can you tell us about that and how, you know, the pivot during the pandemic, you know, how that may be encouraging this this expansion or relocation? Um, yeah, we 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 had always we've been trying to expand for the last several years now, uh, looking at different spaces and trying to make that happen. We tried in Woodbridge here, we tried in New Haven, and uh, an opportunity came up in West Haven. So we've been working on that for the last year plus. We've got another city council vote um, to get through, and if, if all goes according to plan, we'll hopefully be relocating over to West Haven, and then this time next year we'll be the opening. We'll be in a new space. 
but it's been a need for us for several years now. We've been we've been operating at capacity. We've squeezed more tanks into this building than anyone would believe possible. <laughs> and uh, we're making this year we'll produce right around 20,000 barrels of beer uh, just for Connecticut. Most of that most of that liquid, all that liquid going to Connecticut. So the need to expand for us has been pretty pretty prevalent for the last few years now. So we're excited for the opportunity to be able to be in West Haven going forward. You can join our conversation if you have questions about the local craft brew industry or if you want to let us know uh, which breweries uh, you like to go to in your neighborhood. Again, our number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Phil, we talked to Jamal earlier about uh, how the Brewers Guild is working with him and Nebco on, on scholarship opportunities. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that, you know, this need, especially in our state, you know, to diversify, you know, who um, is working in this industry industry and also making space for people to feel comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jamal nailed it on the head of, of the entire mission of our Connecticut Brewers Guild African American Brewing Science Scholarship um, at Sacred Heart. Um, you know, and I, wa- I wanted to mention, we, we started that program um, three years ago now um, this, at Sacred Heart. We just got together and said, hey, we want to look at formalizing more of an education program in Connecticut. Um, and Sacred Heart approached us and we started looking at all these programs and started picking out the classes that sounded really cool and trying to develop the program uh, in conjunction with the professors at Sacred Heart. And and so that got up and running in one year. And immediately, you know, with right after that, we said, all right, great, we got this program, but now who's going to be going through it? Um, and that that's where all those conversations with Jamal started happening. And we, and we started looking at really... Um, being cognizant of the people that we're going to be putting through the program and that are going to come out of that program educated in Connecticut, that we're going to be going to the breweries and saying, Hey, look at this person. They're got the, they're educated. They're one of the first people to come out of the program. We got to give them an opportunity. Um, and, and if we're going to be pushing people towards those breweries and making those connections and networking between, you know, Sacred Heart and, and the breweries, we need to be, um, cognizant of, of who those people are and, and, and what better community to help out than the one that has been marginalized for, for generations um, and give op- our opportunities to people that may not have had it before or to Jamal's point before, even felt comfortable with even taking that first step. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest things that we've been able to do is, is sit down with people that have shown even the smallest interest, whether it be at the Change in the Air Festival or, or people coming into the tap room. And, you know, you go into NEPCO and, and the scholarship posters are all plastered. And, you know, as soon as we see anybody showing any interest, we, we're sitting down with them, having a beer, talking about the program, talking about internships. And that's one of the things that this scholarship provides as well is that they get an internship right at NEPCO. Um, right after the program. So they're already in line to have a, a, a good paying job. Um, and that's something that we're looking at the beer industry as well as providing great jobs to great people. You know, earlier on the show, about a year ago, we talked to women brewers and others who didn't feel comfortable always uh, uh, where uh, they work. And I'm wondering, you know, through the work of the Guild and what you're seeing in local breweries about uh, gender diversity uh, and, and making changes there. I'm curious your thoughts there. Yeah, absolutely. We've we've made some really great strides over the last couple of years uh, in diversity and inclusion and equity, but we have so much further to go. And, and we've been working very closely with Jamal and the Change in the Air Foundation and getting that formalized. And that is, has so many goals. I'm so happy to see where it's where it's come and where it's going. Um, but we also have our Pink Boot Society, which is uh, all women run uh, organization about beer education and, and beer jobs and careers for women in the industry. So having those two um, two pivots 
for the Connecticut Brewers Guild and our entire industry. And we're constantly talking about it at our meetings with our breweries saying, um, are you implementing anything at your brewery? What are you implementing? We, we partner with the Alliance to End Sexual Violence to talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, discrimination um, against women in the workplace as well. And are you being cognizant of who you're hiring? Um, have you gone through, there's, there's studies that show that if you do a, a blind resume where you don't look at the name, um, you know, just look at their job experience, um, there's led to more diversity that way as well. Um, we're, we're putting a lot of resources in the hands of breweries um, because they are businesses. A lot of these businesses, uh, breweries have just gone, gotten up and running and, you know, they're, they're just kind of figuring it out as they go. This is a new industry, but we're providing them the resources. The entire uh, point of why the guild exists is to provide the resources to these businesses so that they are doing a good job and being a good uh, community supporter. Um, and that's something that, like, again, we've made some really great strides and we've been, been putting a lot of great emphasis uh, on diversity, equity, inclusion, but there's so much work to be done. Um, it is nowhere close to what the actual population of Connecticut looks like. Um, it is it is the complete inverse. So we we need to change that, and we are changing that. Uh, Jamal, before we end, uh, we're talking about you know again uh, making this inclusive also uh, for women and others. And I understand there's a women's summit coming up in New Haven. What can you tell us? Yeah, uh, Jess Bautista, my fiance, is hosting and organizing a women's summit. Uh, and it's and it's a concept. It's called She's Into Beer. And the idea is that they're bringing women from all different parts of the beer industry. So from sales, from marketing to brewing, to ownership and taproom ownership, even some of the scholarship recipients will be there. Uh, some of the recent graduates from the brewing science program. Uh, there's going to be a sensory portion of that. So getting to have these panel discussions, hearing from women that are in the industry, uh, but also women that are not in the industry to be able to go to something like this will be a beer fest kind of sampling opportunity there. Um, one of the uh, the head uh, head person of sensory at Two Roads is going to be there as well to provide uh, sampling through hops and, and understanding how to sample beer and what that really means. So educational and fun, um, but also just a really cool space for women to be able to to be amongst one another to learn about the industry, to learn about beer in general, and just uh, and hear these voices of, of some women that are doing some really awesome things in this business, especially locally. That's good to hear. Jamal Robinson, again, is Director of Sales and Marketing at New England Brewing Company. Jamal, thanks for your time on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Staying with us is Phil Pappas, Executive Director of the Connecticut Brewers Guild. Coming up, we're going to hear more about breweries in our state, including uh, the Brewers Association naming Athletic Brewing uh, one of the top 50 producing craft brewing companies in the U.S. This is uh, based in Stratford. They make non-alcoholic products. More after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about the craft brew industry in Connecticut, also learning about national trends. Juan uh, sent us a message on Facebook, wanted to shout out Hanging Hills Brewery. That's in Hartford. Uh, now when we talk about national trends, again, we spoke with Bart Watson, chief economist at the Brewers Association, and he explained the success of the craft brewing industry more broadly. Let's take a listen. Craft brewing has grown every year since we started measuring in, in the early 1980s. So seeing the declines, you know, 
in, in 2020 in terms of production volume that we saw during COVID was, you know, really a shock and shows how dramatically the market changed during the immediate COVID period. Again, my guest is Phil Pappas, Executive Director of Connecticut Brewers Guild. You know, Watson also noted, Phil, the craft beer market was starting to see signs of maturity and there might be potential for saturation. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely, Bart. Uh, Bart's been been on this for a while and, and we've been, you know, getting these questions, you know, the, the, the forever question, is there a bubble? And, uh, you know, Connecticut still ranks in the middle of the pack when it comes to, to breweries per capita. Uh, we rank 25th in uh, in that. Uh, so we only have uh, 3.2 breweries per 100,000 people here in Connecticut that are 21 and over. And when you look at states like Vermont, Vermont is actually number one. They have 13 and a half. Uh, so very still a lot of room for growth for us here in Connecticut. Um, you know, we, we have examples uh, in Manchester where we have four breweries for 60,000 people. Um, so and, and they're all doing well. So there is our examples of really great uh, communities. And as long as people continue to show out for the breweries, continue to support them, there's no reason why we can't support more. Before the break, I mentioned Athletic Brewing in Stratford. Can you tell us about them? Yeah. Yeah. Athletic is uh, it is, is such a great partner, such a great addition to this craft beer industry. And they've taken the non-alcoholic market by storm, um, you know, and uh, you you think about non-alcoholic beer, O'Doul's is the only one that really comes to mind. It's kind of your, you know, your grandfather's non-alcoholic beer, right? You know, and, and you know, some people, uh, it's just not a good beer. My opinion, it doesn't taste good. But Athletic has completely changed what you think about non-alcoholic beer. Um, and they were just ranked, and, and they, they can't stop winning awards. Uh, they were ranked uh, Time Magazine top 100 companies, not just in beer, just in general top 100 companies. Um, they're now on their third location um, in, in four years in Milford um, and adding so much more production to that. And all their beers are so good. It's what I drink during the week. It's what I'm cooking with dinner. Um, and it's really true to style beer. So they have their New England IPAs, they have their stouts, they have their sours, they have their light pilsners and lagers. And so they really are taking over the entire non-alcoholic game. And what we're really seeing too is Connecticut breweries are, are putting them um, in their tap rooms as well. So if somebody comes into a, a brewery at Nepco and, and they're like, hey, I don't want to drink a beer today or, you know, I'm driving and they want to be responsible and, and they're they're offering them non-athletic brewing. So uh, they've been such a great addition. They're, they're really uh, adding to this, uh, you know, brew without compromise mindset. Right. I wanted to circle back uh, to something you mentioned earlier, you know, challenges that remain we're seeing uh, in our region, CO2 shortages, a WBUR out of Boston reporting on night shift brewery in mass uh, because of their CO2 supplier won't be able to deliver to them for more than a year. Um, they're going to have, be cutting their staff by half and so are you concerned at all in Connecticut about this uh, potential shortage yeah absolutely we are um, you know it's something that uh, is just heartbreaking to see happen to such a great brewery in, in, in night shift uh, up in Massachusetts and they're right over the border they're not too far from us here in Connecticut um, we've been working very closely with our co2 suppliers in Connecticut and and we don't have any scares like that yet um, however if we don't have the co2 shortage come back um, or if it, if the cost is going to significantly increase um, we could see some breweries either pull back on their production um, and and really, really hoping that we don't see any closures due to it. Um, it's heartbreaking to see 
uh, a brewery go through so much hard blood, sweat, and tears to open and, and operate within the space, deal with the last two and a half years that that we've dealt with, and then come out trying to come out of it. We're we're through this the light in the end of the tunnel, and you know you're hit yet again with it with another supply issue, um, and and it's heartbreaking to see. And we're 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 staying on top of it. Um, you know, we're constantly seeing what's happening in other states. We work very closely with the Brewers Association, but also with all the other state guild directors, um, talking constantly with them about what they're seeing. And we're, we're trying to keep our finger on the pulse in every facet of, of this business. We're almost out of time, Phil. I'm just wondering when you think about some of the legislative priorities moving forward, any possible changes with delivery options? I understand direct to consumer shipping maybe in the horizon. What can you tell us? Yeah, absolutely. So we uh, during COVID, we got the allowance for breweries to do home delivery, which has been really great. It kept a lot of the employees um, just <laughs> having a job and doing something in the in the brewery. But you know, we're looking at uh, how beer is delivered to people and how uh, the beer act is available to people. So we're looking at direct consumer shipping here in Connecticut because we are looking on a national level to allow the United States Postal Service through the USPS Shipping Equity Act. Uh, for them to deliver beer and deliver alcohol. So we're looking, if that does pass, and when we're looking at that on a congressional level, if that passes, then we are already behind the ball here in Connecticut because we don't have the allowance right now uh, for breweries to uh, ship direct uh, beer directly to people. Uh, we Wineries and cideries in Connecticut have that allowance, um, and we don't. And, and we don't think that it's a, a level playing field in that area. Um, and it's something that we think breweries should absolutely have an access to. So we're trying to change that legislatively, and um, we're hoping to get that done in 2023. That's Phil Pappas, Executive Director again of Connecticut Brewers Guild. Phil, thank you for your time on the show. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and uh, appreciate all the support from uh, the consumers out there. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. You can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.